think that we don't look to Adam for anything. He was the first man, and references are made to him in the Bible, but nothing really good is said. <clears throat> You'd think of him as the father of mankind in one sense, and yet he is the way whereby sin came into the world. And that's the way the New Testament looks at the figure of Adam. Then we encounter, as we go forward, some other people who were faithful to God, such as Enoch, who was used to some degree by God, but then he was taken away and lived out his life somewhere else and died. And very little is known about Enoch except he was a preacher of righteousness and of worship of God, I'm sure. Then we come to Noah, who did, I guess you would have to say, a very great work. Uh, it was limited, however. He was told to build an ark and to put the, the people and the animals on the ark, the eight souls, including himself and the animals. And then it floated around and landed, and Noah came out of there, and you don't hear much about Noah ever after. He's listed among the faithful, I think, in Hebrews 11. But we do not look back to Noah a great deal, do we? We're not instructed to, in fact. I find it very interesting that when God says, look to the fathers, he might in a very general sense say, look to all those who were faithful in Hebrews 11, which would include those aforementioned. However, when he speaks of the fathers, he really goes to where? To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, I find it very interesting that God, and we'll see that today in a couple of places, I think, does not always introduce himself in all his names and all the hats and offices that he carries and wears. He introduces himself a bit at a time to humankind. For instance, the term Almighty, speaking of God, is not mentioned until Genesis 14. He's called God, or the Lord, but not the Almighty. Now, is there a reason for this? Now, to me, or to you, this might seem, to some degree, as I start out today, speculation, but I think it can be shown that the principle I'm bringing out here, indeed, is of God, and he did reveal himself in stages as his offices became important to what was going on in his plan and purpose for mankind. Now, we started the series about the Creator God, showing from Genesis 1, Him being the Creator, and went through quite a bit about Him as the Creator. But today we're going to introduce a different view of God, a different part of God, and that is Almighty God, because He introduces Himself in that form and in that fashion to initially one man. Let's go to Genesis 14 and begin to pick up the story here. Now, we've been to Abraham quite a bit in the last months, and I find it interesting that we come back here in considering Almighty God, because it is here that the story of Almighty God actually begins. Now, if God introduces himself wearing a different hat than the ones he has worn beforehand, perhaps it is important that we very deeply consider the context of that, what God was doing, what he had in mind, why he would appear in a different way than he had ever appeared before. You know, as your children grow up, you appear to them in different ways in the various stages of their growing up, do you not? You don't reveal a lot of things about yourself to your child when it's very, very small. But as time goes on and the relationship becomes fuller and more mature, you talk to your children about things you never talked to them about before. And that continues 
uh, even into old age because the, the level of maturity changes, situations change. We're not to be particularly friends to our children when they're growing up. We are in the role of parent. But there comes a point where parenthood kind of diminishes once they reach majority age. And now, even though we might still be parent, we find ourselves obligated to treat them as adults, even though some parents have trouble weaning themselves from that. And they still try to treat them like children when they're 40 years old or 50. Uh, and the children, to one degree or another, may resent that because they want to be accepted as adults in their own right and not as my little child. Those are relationship problems that can develop when we have trouble turning loose of one aspect and moving on. So these are things that we, with our children, even deal with, and it's something that God himself works on as he works with us as a people. Now, he had some very special uh, plans for Abraham and begins to reveal them here. Uh, and he is building a relationship with Abraham. Now, he had told him back, oh, when he'd started that he was to depart from his father's house in chapter 12 and that God would make a great nation of him and bless him. This was a future projection. It's an initial instruction and promise to Abraham that God made. And then God went about preparing Abraham, or Abram at the time, for the job that was ahead for him. And he put him through quite a bit. But he had told him, I'll give you this land, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, in verse 3. So he made him some promises that Abraham could not see. It's just things that the Lord had said to Abraham, okay? The Lord told me these things. Abraham might have said to Sarah or anyone who asked. I haven't seen anything of it, but <clears throat> this is what he told me would happen. Verse 7, I'll give your seed this land and so on. And he told him, it was at the place where he told him, uh, well, he'd gone into that land, and then he went south into Egypt because of a, a famine that was in the land, verses 9 and 10. And then he lied about his wife, saying, she's my sister, and so on. So he had his difficulties in utterly and completely trusting God. He was willing to compromise his own moral standing and say, well, she is my half-sister, so I'll just call her my sister instead of my wife, which was a deception. <coughs> and he got found out, and it was embarrassing. Anyway, he was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold in chapter 13 and verse 2. And then he had the fight with uh, Lot, and they divided the land. In verse 12, <coughs> 13, he dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. So he was in the area that God had made as the promised land, and it was dwelt in by the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and so on, as we've seen recently, the black uh, races of Ham. Verse 14, the Eternal said to Abram, after the lot was separated from him, he got Lot out of the picture, now he's dealing not just with Abraham and Lot, but Abraham alone. And I'm sure that that was part of the contention and why God got Lot out of there, because he had something in particular to do with Abraham only, not Lot's part of the story. Now, we have not seen the last of Lot because uh, he will turn up as the peoples of Moab and Ammon later on related, but not really in the line of Israel. <clears throat> So he said, after Lot was gone, lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west. And this is the land that I will give you and your seed forever, and I will make your seed as the dust of the earth. So if you could number dust, then you could number your people. So he makes additional promise or a reiteration of the promise to Abraham and embellishes it a certain amount. 
He told him, look this land over. It's going to be yours. So this is the story as it begins to develop. Now, there was a, a war that went on, and uh, much was stolen from Israel. I won't go through the whole story. We've been there. Uh, and Abraham went to get the goods, verse 16. He brought back all the goods and, brought all, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of uh, Chedor Lameor, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. It doesn't say Almighty God, does it, but priest of the Most High God. <coughs> and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him tithes of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And, and so he said, No, I'll just keep some back for the men who fought the battle. But I think that God was testing Abraham here as to whether or not he would accept, accept God as the Most High God and give him the 10%. It isn't all laid out in detail, but it is part of the story, is it not? So, God had made these promises to Abraham, uh, but there were some training sessions to go on. He, he passed the money test here. Let's see, where did I want to go now? Um, through 15, I wanted to go over to 17. Now, well, in 16, let's rehearse that part of the story a little bit as well. God had promised him seed and children. Now, Abraham and Sarah <clears throat> had some question about this. They didn't know how this was to come to pass. They had not been yet initiated to Almighty God. They did not quite understand that concept. So they reasoned among themselves. Sarah was barren, and they tried to figure out how to accomplish what God said would happen. We often, through history, have done this. We've said, well, God says this will happen. I will figure out how to make it happen. So they came up with an idea. Sarah said, well, I've got Hagar here. Uh, maybe she could have children, and I'll call them mine, and they'll certainly be yours, and we'll do it this way. So they took the matter into their own hands and tried to figure out how to accomplish what God said would happen. Sometimes we need to stand back and see the salvation of the eternal, a word that will come to us later. We try to figure things out for ourselves, and sometimes we make mistakes thinking we can do God's job for him when it is really his job. Now that lesson was going to be driven home. You know the story and knew that it did not work out too well, that Ishmael was born of Hagar, and then later on God said, well, he's going to be a great nation too, but this is not what I had in mind. This was your solution, but it didn't work out that way. Now, what were Abraham and Sarah to do, or Abram at this point? What were they to do? They'd been trying to have children ever since they'd gotten married, and nothing had happened, and yet God had made them this promise. So they were scratching their head and trying to figure out, how do we accomplish this? And all they could look at were the circumstances they had. They could not see anything but what was before them, could they? Aren't we that way? We might 
project or think or postulate, theorize, speculate on what God might do and how he might do it, but we're only speculating, are we not? The only thing we can see for sure is what is right in front of us about what God may have said, and then he said, I'm going to do this, this, and this. So you begin to figure out how can we accomplish that. And we're somewhat in that same position today, are we not? God has told us certain things that are going to happen here in the end time. He has not told us the exact way they will happen, what we'll go through precisely, how it will come about. So we scratch our heads and think about it and keep reading the scriptures and wondering, and I think that's the best answer, <clears throat> to try to figure out what it is that God is going to do and how he's going to go about it. And he's not ac actually even told us exactly when, has he? Now, at this point, Abram and Sarah were in that same position. And they could see no way that this was going to happen. They did not have, at that point, a level of faith, trust in God to think that he could do this. They just didn't quite believe he could do this. That's what it really boils down to. So we're going to have to find a way. And they tried a way, and it didn't work out. Now let's go to chapter 17. Bear in mind that Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86. When Abram was 90 years old and 9, so from 86 to age 99, they had at least been considering this and the fact that Ishmael had been born and yet Sarah still did not have a child. So they had thought about it and tried to figure it out tried to do it their way. That didn't work out too well. So they had to wait then from 86 to 99. Long time to wait. The Eternal appeared to Abram, or the Lord appeared to Abram, and said to him. Now here is a magnificent statement. He appeared to Abram. Now he had appeared to Abram before, hadn't he? But he had not said this. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be you perfect or mature or upright. Be what I want you to be. So he's giving him knowledge of himself. I am Almighty God and here's what I want you to do. <clears throat> and with this statement, he said, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So they had not recognized the almighty side of God to this point is what I've been driving at. They had sought their own solutions, which were not God's solution, even though God went ahead and used Ishmael for a purpose, but it was not his primary purpose. It was not what he had in mind for Abraham and Sarah. So he makes a landmark statement. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and do it right. That being the condition then I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, or high father, but your name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made you. I, number 87 is high father. That's what his new name would be, I guess. <clears throat> and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you. 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after me. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now that is an incredible statement to make, is it not? Here is someone who proclaims, I am almighty. I can do whatever I say. <clears throat> I can not only do it with you, but my word will stand and it will last generation after generation to your seed forevermore. Now that's quite a statement. You and I cannot make a statement that goes beyond our next heartbeat. Even what we might put in a will to our heirs and assigns forever usually does not last past the funeral. And things begin falling apart, and our will is contested, and we're no longer there to enforce anything, and it goes the way of the lawyers or our children or whoever might get hold of it, right? But we can't promise anything and make it work. Nothing. But God is making a policy statement here, and he's proclaiming himself as the Almighty One. Now, they, he was saying, that which I'm promising here is going to happen. I told you it would, and you did not really believe me. You tried your thing. Now, I'm putting on a different hat here, and I am going to show you I am the Almighty. Now, Abram, Abram had been able to perform uh, with Hagar and produce a child. It was Sarah that was barren. But now God waited and waited for a purpose. Now he was 99 years old when God appeared this time, and Abraham and Sarah were both at the point where nothing could possibly happen. It wasn't just Sarah who was barren. Now Abraham was himself totally impotent unable to do anything at age 99 toward generating a child. So God was working through time here to make a point. There's a lot of instruction here for us. God puts us through trials, through tests. He makes us wait. He makes us cool our heels. He makes us understand that anything that he wants done, we simply cannot do. It has to be something he does. So if Abram and Sarah had been somewhat helpless feeling at one point and come up with a solution named Hagar, and that still was not the answer to what God had in mind, they had to wait again. And now... They were beyond the point of any kind of hope of having a child, any hope of any kind. Utterly hopeless. God had engineered this situation. He had made these promises. He had reiterated the promises. He had said, this isn't what I had in mind, but I'll use Ishmael anyway. But there is another answer coming. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited and things got worse, and apparently then there was no hope whatsoever. Will God work with us to the point that he has made promises and we will get to where there is no hope, whatever, that we could possibly do anything to make those promises come to, to pass? That has been his pattern in the past. Now we have done some things that God has asked us to do in Scripture by coming here and establishing a small village. But time is going on, 
And I see other instruction in here of things that shall come to pass. But you know, as time goes on, and we see no movement from God toward a fulfillment of those things in the way that they are written in Scripture, or the way that God told Abram and Sarah, we will begin to come to a point of helplessness, perhaps of hopelessness, thinking, how do we do this? How can this happen? God promised all this, but I don't see a way to move forward. I don't see a way to make it happen. What can we do? In other words, we are not almighty, are we? In fact, we're not even mighty. Take away the all. We are pathetic and pitiful and weak and helpless. And that is exactly the position that God brought Abraham and Sarah to be. Utterly hopeless. No way out of this. How do we move forward? We're both impotent. No answer. No way. Does it not put you in a position to begin to either deny or to trust in one who is almighty, who is able to do anything he said he would do. In this room and on this phone line, we have people who have hopes, who have dreams, who have, who have aspirations, who would like to see peace on earth, who would like to be married, who would like to have children, who would like to have families, and yet we are constrained by circumstance and by belief in God not to be able to participate in some of those things at the moment. And doesn't it appear pretty hopeless? Some of you, looking at the possibility of being married in this age to someone of like mind and like belief, while you're still young enough to appreciate it, seems utterly hopeless to you, sometimes, day to day, week to week, month to month, does it not? You see no answer whatsoever, no possibilities. Frustrating, isn't it? Must have been that way for Abraham and Sarah as well. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, do we give up and say this is hopeless? Or do we believe in the almighty God? We should be beginning to get a clue why he introduced himself as the almighty to Abraham and Sarah. Because he was about to do something that they saw no way. And Sarah even laughed when she heard how God was going to go about this, and Abraham himself got a chuckle out of it. And she denied laughing. And he said, oh yeah, you laughed all right. You, you don't really believe me, but I'm going to show you I am the Almighty. That was the point here. Chapter 18 uh, verse 18, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Eternal to do justice and judgment, that the Eternal may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Now, I don't believe that Abraham and Sarah had given up their faith in God entirely. I don't believe that for a moment. But after you've tried as hard as they had for that many years and done everything you knew to do and nothing happened, when somebody told you this is indeed going to happen and you two are going to be involved, it could get a chuckle and disbelief out of you, could it not? Just as when God does some things or says he's going to do them to us, and I believe it. You believe it. You're here, don't you? Most people think you're nuts, don't they? 
They don't believe it. Now, sometimes we almost have to laugh at ourselves, don't we? And think, how could this be? How could we understand these scriptures when no one else seems to? And I have to conclude that God had to open our eyes to see. Because these promises are there. And if I begin to doubt and say there's no way <clears throat> that the things that are written here could possibly happen in this age and us be part of it even, all I have to do is read the scriptures and believe what? I have to believe there is an almighty God who can do anything he says, and if he wrote it in here, it's going to happen. It just is. Now, meantime, we have to live up to what he has told us to do, and that is to live uprightly before him. And that we find in itself a tremendous challenge. Now, this came in two parts. First is believing Isaac would be born to Abraham and to Sarah. And once that was done, by the hand of the Almighty, who caused it to be able to happen. And he said, within a year, Sarah, you're going to have a child of Abraham. And it did happen. <clears throat> now, Abraham was to become what? The father of the faithful. So God had yet another test for him. He let Isaac grow up over a period of time. Abraham and Sarah bonded with him. He was their son. They loved him very, very deeply because of not just being parents, but because of all they had gone through and God's promises and all the time it took for that to happen. And then it did happen. And they must have had feelings for Isaac beyond what is even normal for human beings to have. Now, we love our children dearly, don't we? And yet, there must have been something even more special about this, considering the circumstances that it had to come through. So, now, for another period of time, they watch him grow up, and this bonding continues, and the closeness in the relationship, and goes through various stages until he is almost grown or grown. And then God says... Now remember, he said, this son, Isaac, will cause you to be the father of many nations, and his seed will be reproduced upon the earth to become as the sands of the sea. So you're living with this for all these years. You're expecting Isaac to get married, and you're looking among relatives and so on to figure out who he should marry to see these promises of God happen. And then one day God says, uh, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and a bunch of firewood and a knife and go up to Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, and I'd like you to uh, sacrifice him to me. Now, that would have been a shock. But you said the children would come through Isaac, and now you want me to kill him? Now, this is, if, if Isaac is going to be the father of these nations... This could be even a greater miracle than Abraham being able to perform and Sarah being able to conceive. Dead's dead. Now, he'd been dead in some respects before. But now he says, kill this son. By now, Abraham had begun to comprehend that there is an almighty God who has all power and can do anything he says. So he got up and saddled his ass and told Isaac, we're going to Mount Moriah. On the strength of what he had begun to see as an almighty being. I don't think Adam ever viewed God in quite that way. I don't think Noah and Enoch viewed God in quite that way. He announced it, and then he put them in conditions to prove it. And when Abraham raised that knife to slice his son's throat, God said, hold it, 
now I know you have accepted my ability as the Almighty God. So you don't have to do what you were about to do. Now he has promised us a lot of promises for the end time, has he not? And now he's going to destroy the earth and given a chance to escape all that is about to come. If you will do this, this, and this, perhaps you can be accounted worthy to escape. Do we yet recognize Almighty God? Or do we still fear? Do we still worry? Do we still be concerned about the conspiracy of a one-world government under Satan that we know is about to come to pass and we see happening daily in front of us? Do we fear it? Do we worry about it? Or do we believe in Almighty God, as he tells us in Isaiah 8, that we are to do? God has no pleasure in those who shrink back. He says the timid and the fearful will not be in his kingdom. Now, isn't fear natural? And we went through a whole series on fear. And that really was based upon us coming to grasp and fear God instead of what is around us. What is it that we fear? That God cannot accept the timid and the fearful because if you are still timid and fearful and shrinking back from what's coming, it is because you have not yet recognized God as the Almighty. You are still lacking in that department if you fear that which is coming more than fearing God and trusting Him and believing that He is going to take care of things. So he put Abraham and Sarah through this, even to the point of killing it. God didn't make it happen, but he's told us that there will be a lot of God's people who die here at the end time. So that is ultimately a possibility before us, is it not? just as the possibility of death was before Isaac. But Abraham did not shrink back. He was not timid or fearful. He had finally accepted the title Almighty and believed it. And then God said, Now I believe it too that you believe it. Now I know that you've accepted the title I gave you at the time that I began working this thing out. Over a period of time, many years in fact, it did work out exactly the way God said. Now, the term Almighty is only used 57 times in the Bible. But it is introduced at very critical moments. I want to show you that here. The first time was with Abraham at the beginning of this situation, the circumstances that would work out so that Isaac would indeed get married and have children. And this family line would continue on, as God said, in spite of the stops and starts that God put them through. The next place the term Almighty is used is in Genesis 28. Now Isaac, by this time, had had a son, Jacob, and God was beginning to deal with Jacob as well. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him. Now this is the time that is a pivotal moment in the life of Jacob and a pivotal moment in the life of Isaac as the father. He called him to him, let's say a formal meeting if you will. He'd called him to dinner many times. But here he called him before him for a very specific and very important meeting. <clears throat> so he called him and blessed him and charged him or gave him a responsibility and said to him, You shall not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take you a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So he was giving a charge, an instruction, and it was a very important one. 
It's one that our children today probably would take great exception to if you told them where to go to obtain a mate and told them the parameters they had to operate within and they couldn't just marry anybody they quote-unquote fell in love with. So this is a very important thing that's being said and one that our children, for the most part, today would not accept. And God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be a multitude of people and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your seed with you that you may inherit the land wherein you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. So God came to Abraham and said, I am almighty. And then that was proved, and Isaac came along, and Abraham had told him this story probably many, many, many times because he was shaping Isaac to be what God said Isaac would be. So Isaac then was passing down his legacy to Jacob, and he used the same title for God. He didn't say the Lord. He said, the Almighty. And then he reiterated these same promises that God had made to Abraham, which would prove that he was Almighty, because it wasn't just for that day that God would do something for Abraham, or for Isaac, or for Jacob, but this was something that would be passed down generation to generation that God would sustain and cause to happen. So father to son, the same instruction was given that had come from Almighty God in a formal presentation of what Almighty God had in mind for Jacob. The next time that that title is used is in Genesis 35. Genesis 35 uh, verse 9, And God appeared to Jacob again when he came out of Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, so here's a blessing conferred from God. God said to him, uses the more generic term here, doesn't it? God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And he called his name Israel. So this is a landmark opportunity or time or pivotal position in Jacob's life as well. And God said to him, so God is reiterating to Jacob the same thing his father Isaac had said. So this has been carried on down until Jacob is a man ready to be used of God. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Same thing it is said to Abraham and Sarah. So he's using the same context, the same analogy, the same family thing of producing ultimately a nation. Be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall be of you, and your kings and kings shall come out of your loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Jacob, or Isaac, to you I will give it, and to your seed after you will I give the land. Now the land has gone back and forth since this time, and Israel has been banished from it a couple of times, but they've always come back. And that's why we're in it today, is because we were banished for sin, but Almighty God, who allowed others to live here, has brought us back and given it to us. And now we have corrupted ourselves again, and it is about to be taken away again, except for a few who will stay here that God will use as a seed to begin the kingdom of God when Christ returns. It will at that time be given back again. Isn't it amazing that an almighty God can work all this out through all the hundreds and thousands of years to come out exactly the way he said. 
I'm beginning to have, I, I have used and the church has used the term Almighty a lot, have we not? I know personally I address God many, many times as Almighty Heavenly Father. It's just been my habit for years. But I don't think I really comprehended it until I started really looking at this, what I was saying and how God uses the term Almighty. So it's something that you can throw about and you can use, but do you really get it is the point. And that's the purpose today, is to see how God uses this term so that henceforth, when we address Him as Almighty, we have a better perspective and understanding of that name and how to use it and what it really means to us. Now, let's go on to chapter 43. We're about verse 11. Now this is the time when the famine was sore on the land. You remember and Jacob was sitting, uh, Joseph had gone to Egypt as a captive and had been made over everything. And they had, Jacob had to send the sons down to Egypt to, to get wheat or grain and so on to survive. Um, I'll just cut into the context. Verse 11, And their father Israel said to them, It must be so now. Do this. Uh, we've done everything we can do. Here again we have that familiar refrain, there's nothing else to do. We have no solution. We have no way to sustain ourselves. We have no way to go. I wonder if God will bring us to this point right here and now, where we will have to look to Almighty God and we will have no solutions of our own. Think about it. Maybe it won't have to come to that if we're what we should be, but I would not be at all surprised because this is the way he's always worked. He did it with Abraham. Isaac was willing to give up his own life. He saw no solution either as he lay there ready to have his throat cut. And now Jacob had no solution other than starve to death unless you go to Egypt. And God worked all this thing out. Anyway, um, take the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down a man, the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices, myrrh, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. So they had a little bit, but not enough to keep them going. And they, even of that precious stock, they took a little bit of those things. Take double money in your hand. Interesting. Had money, just didn't have anything much to eat. Are we coming there soon in this nation? I think so. Be dollars floating around everywhere, but nothing to eat. Take double money in your hand, and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. Take also your brother, arise, and go again to the man. So he said, Take Benjamin, take everything you got, basically and go to the man. They didn't know it was Joseph at this point, but the man that you have to go to in Egypt. Verse 14, And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So he said, You are in the hands of Almighty God. Now Jacob had had that name used with him by his father Isaac, at a formal blessing ceremony for Isaac, and now, I mean for Jacob, and now Jacob himself is basically turning everything he has into the hand of Almighty God to give them grace and favor in the eyes of this Egyptian tyrant, which is the way they looked upon Joseph at that time. You're in the hands of Almighty God. Interesting, is it not, the way he termed that at that point. Chapter 49. 
chapter 22. Now, the blessing came here from Jacob to his sons, the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. And it is another important juncture in the history of Israel because here the blessings that God would cause to happen were conferred upon these twelve tribes. Now, who was going to make this happen? Jacob is going to tell these sons what would befall them in the latter days. Could Jacob make it happen? No, he was going to die soon. Could these boys make it happen? No, they were just human beings. But Jacob then gave instruction that would carry through all generations until this very day as we sit here. But let's notice what he said about Joseph because... The greatest blessings would come through Joseph, through, Ab through uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. I believe we are Ephraim because it fits better than the old idea of Manasseh. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. So a vine that really produces and who just grows and grows and has bounteous blessings. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength. Which nation was it that won World War I? Which was it that won World War II? When we were the target and Britain was the target, did Britain save us or did we save Britain in both cases? It doesn't delineate, but... You're going to see Ephraim here as the key figure, and we went through that not long ago when we went through the series on our fathers. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. For thence is the shepherd the stone of Israel. So here he is referred to as the mighty God again, who is able to deliver both then and in our generation. Even by the God of your Father, who shall help thee, and by thee, Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. That's a pretty broad statement. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brothers. And have we not essentially been separate from our brothers? Even in this end time, northwestern Europe and Britain is the main area of Israel, and New Zealand and Australia and some of South Africa were settled from there, but we were put clear across the ocean separate, were we not? And I would not be surprised if Benjamin is Canada close to Joseph, and they were close together back then. But notice that here again, it is the blessing of the Almighty at this juncture, and it is used in terms of Joseph or Ephraim and Manasseh in specific, because that's where the greatest blessing and where God would work, and that's where he has worked both physically and spiritually giving blessing is in this land this land of Joseph. The Almighty One has made to happen what was established in Genesis 49. Here we are, brethren, generations, thousands of years later. Where are those blessings? Right here. Right here with us. Both physical and spiritual. Amazing, isn't it? All the wars... All that's happened in history these thousands of years. And yet God said, this land, Abraham, I'm going to give to you and to your seed forever. And even though we've been pushed in and out of here a couple times, here we are. has to be the same place because that's what the promise was that was made. So where we are and what blessing and bounteous land has been given to us has to be the fulfillment of this did Almighty God 
cause this to happen. Now let's go to Exodus 6. This is a bit of an enigmatic story, a little hard to understand in some respects. And I think that perhaps God wrote it this way on purpose. Well, I know he did. Because there's some things here that need to be understood. And this is the story of Balaam and Israel. Uh, let's look at it today. We've looked at it before, and many have over the years. And even the commentaries will say this is a bit of a hard thing to understand. The Balaam seemed to be a mixture of good and evil and what, what really is the story here? Let's look at it today from the direction that I've been coming all day long. Wait a minute, that's not, no, I'm not for that yet. Exodus 6. This is about Moses. Who was the next major leader after Joseph? Moses, 400 years later. Then the Eternal said to Moses, Now shall you see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Now this is interesting, and I think it gives us a little more reason for what God did. Why he allowed... I mean... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, had been in the promised land, here. And that they had gone down into Egypt, which was south of here, where I'm standing today. And there they had stayed for 400 years. Why? Was there some point in it? Why wasn't it a couple, three years, and then they boogied out of there and back to the promised land? God had reason. God had something he was working out. And it needed to be worked out over a period of time. Now notice he said to Moses, I'm going to deliver you. Now this would have seemed impossible, would it not? After you had been there for 430 years, <coughs> after you had been slaves, subjugated, and we're feeling the whip of the Egyptians day in and day out. You didn't even remember who God was. Didn't remember Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, any of that stuff. It had been changed. History had been rewritten. They didn't even know their history anymore. After 400 years, they were worshiping crocodiles and cows and flies and lice and, and frogs. Those were the gods they worshiped. Complete change. Knew nothing of the true God. And I've said it before. When Moses said, God will deliver you, they said, which God? <coughs> and the very gods they worshipped and the gods that the Egyptians worshipped were made plagues upon them. Now why did he use those gods that they worshipped with the Egyptians <coughs> as plagues? He was going to show that you may have gods, but they're not real gods. And not only that, they are not almighty gods. And they will turn on you. <coughs> and they can kill you. The gods of Egypt were used to kill Egyptians. So God is setting this whole story up. <coughs> and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Eternal. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. So he's making here to Moses the same point that I've been making for this first hour. That he appeared to them on purpose for the first time as the Almighty. And all through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, 
He had used that name at every formal juncture in their lives where they were about to move forward in the work of God, he addressed himself as Almighty God. Now he's working with Moses, who is about to do a job, and he uses the same thing and reiterates what I have just been saying. I appeared to them by the name of God Almighty, but my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. That is an interesting statement, isn't it? He had never used Jehovah until this point. Just as through Adam, Enoch, Noah, Shem, he had apparently never used the name Almighty, and it appears first with Abraham. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the ones we look back to because that was when God began a formal process of calling out a people who would become Israel, who would eventually spread over the whole earth. And now, after 400 years of captivity, he's going to use Moses to deliver them, and he introduces a new name. Jehovah means the Eternal or the Eternal One. I find it very interesting that he, he introduced that name at this time. With Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, he had only said, I am Almighty. I can make whatever I promise to you as a person happen. I, made, I am working through doing what I told Abraham. It's being passed Isaac to Jacob, father to son, Nothing big has happened yet, has it? Starts out very small. So he used the term Almighty. Now, 400 years later, he introduces a new name to Moses. Not only am I Almighty, but I am Almighty forevermore, foreverlasting. Now that adds to the story, does it not? I not only have all power, I will have all power forevermore. Now we're standing here at a juncture of what? A juncture of Israel becoming a nation as the sands of the sea. Through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, and the sons of Jacob, there were only 12 brothers when they went into Egypt. Now God had used 400 years of incubation here to do something that would have at that time become to the eyes of Jacob's sons and Jacob himself for many years in Egypt as virtually impossible. How do you make a nation of an enslaved people who have no hope, no future, no apparent opportunity to be anything but slaves forevermore? And this was carried through for 400 long years. It had happened for seemingly a lifetime to Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac. And now to these people... They were utterly hopeless, worshiping frogs and lice. <clears throat> How much do you hope do you have of being blessed by God under those circumstances? Not a whole lot. God was working this thing out in such a way that he could look back and say, you remember those things, Moses, that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that I've taught you for these 40 years now? 10% of the time that Israel was in slavery. These 40 years you've learned that I'm God. Now I am about to show you that not only was I almighty to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I'm going to show you that 400 years later I can still make it work. I am not almighty, I am everlasting. Oh, wow. 
You're about to do something you said hundreds and hundreds of years ago would happen. Got to be impressive if you can pull it off. Wouldn't you think? Then what did they go through? They went through false start and stop. False start and stop. False start and stop. These plagues. And then one night on the 14th, it happened. God delivered them with a mighty hand. Interesting, isn't it? I will take you out with a mighty hand. I didn't even look up the places that mighty is named. But when we talk about Almighty God, he tells us in other places he is mighty. I think it will be interesting someday when you see that a land form, geologically, has the mighty right hand of God on the side of it. God is the Almighty God. He can show it in human flesh. He can show it in the rocks. He can show it in any way he wants to. He is Almighty God. And not only that, he is eternal. Now that to you and me provides a great deal of hope, even as he showed Moses and Israel that not only could he make promises, that he carried out to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you just read the story, people. But I can make it happen now and in the future, eternally. So here we sit, you, me, today. God is about to prove again, but not only is he almighty, but thousands of years later, he can do exactly what he said he could do. Wow, what a story. I'm Almighty, and now to you I am Jehovah. I wasn't known to them as Jehovah. I'm going to, going to show that now. And he's been showing it ever since, although it's almost disappeared, hasn't it? Down through the Middle Ages, down through the 2,000 years since Christ. He showed it to the early New Testament church. Now he's going to show it to us 2,000 years later. He's still the Eternal. He's still Jehovah, and he is still the Almighty. Isn't it neat that we can use both terms? Because we're about to see them proved once again. Well, I was going to get into Balaam next because it... Uh, it uses the same terminology, and it has implications from then and from now, but since we're getting up fairly close to the hour, 15 minutes, I think I'll stop here because it would take more than 15 minutes, and once I get into this story, I'd like to, to finish it. So let's stop there and see what that has to say to us next time I speak. I guess that's next week, and uh, we'll go from there. So I'll let you out early today. Mark this on your calendar. I quit early. <clears throat> I like excuses when I go long. <clears throat>